1: And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, there is so much the hell going on. What the hell do you have to say?
0: This week is the one year anniversary of Russia's unlawful invasion of Ukraine. We just came out of a situation where we had a Chinese spy balloon flying over across the United States unimpeded. So China is emboldened. Russia has been emboldened. And these two things are not unconnected, uh, shall we say. And so we decided to bring on the one person that we know who can connect the dots for us and for all of our listeners, who is the world expert on this, which is General Jack Keene. And I want to tell our listeners, if you're like me, you watch him on Fox News, and he comes on for these five-minute segments with 30-second answers. And you sit there and you say, boy, I wish I could listen to him for half an hour and hear everything that's on the cutting room floor that he doesn't get to say in these short Fox News segments. Well, guess what? You're in for a treat because we've got him and he's going to give you everything. In this interview that we did, he lays out the plan for victory in Ukraine. People are asking, how do we win? Can we win? Yes, we can win. And he explains literally what roads to take, what <laughs> where to go through, what weapons to put on it, and how a victory is achievable. And then second of all, he explains to us why it's in America's national interest and why it's so essential not just to the security of Europe, but also our relationship with China and deterring China from acts of aggression in the Taiwan Strait. This is all interconnected. China, Ukraine, Russia. Jack Keane lays it out brilliantly.
1: He really does. And, you know, the reason we invited Jack to join us again was last week. We were talking about what was going on with the Chinese spy balloon, the first non-response of the Biden administration, and then the weird hysterical response in which they shot down not only the spy balloon, once it had already finished traversing America and gathering intelligence, but also a whole bunch of other random balloons. And God knows they were probably going to birthday parties and shooting those (laughs) babies down as well. But that was the original reason that we asked Jack to come on and, and join us. And of course, then the president made his I think, commendable trip. You know, we've all been calling on him to tell the American people why it is that we are there to use the bully pulpit to make the case for Ukraine, to shore up what is eroding support in the United States for the Ukrainians in their fight against our common enemy in Moscow. He went to Ukraine. He spoke there. He went on to Poland. He spoke there. It was Joe Biden, so it wasn't quite as good as one would want. I really want him to make this case and to do it as president of the United States. But still, good on him for going. And I love the way Mark started. Putin told us last year he'd be there in three days. He's still not there, but Joe Biden is there. So good for Joe Biden for being there and boo to Vladimir Putin, (laughs) who is, as Jack Keane says, pathetic. Usually Mark and I uh, talk for a little bit longer about some of the issues, but Jack was truly generous with his time and as as mark rightly said to me afterwards he conducted a masterclass there is absolutely nothing we can add which you, has uh, never
0: stopped us before <laughs>
1: Also sadly true. Jack has been with us before. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general. He's the former vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army. He's the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. And I'm going to say this again, even though Mark said it already, and we have said it on every podcast that we've had with Jack, the Institute for the Study of War does The unmissable daily analysis on what's going on in Ukraine, if you care about this, if you care about how are the Ukrainians doing, what's happening, going beyond the garbage that we read in the news, the the politics versus analysis, the politics versus news – that is where you will see everything that's going on, along with some really hard-headed looks at what the Russians are doing right, what they're doing wrong, what the Ukrainians are doing right, what the Ukrainians are doing wrong. Jack is the chairman of ISW. Their website is www.understandingwar.org. And AEI's Fred Kagan is running that work over at ISW with his own team also here at AEI. So all the more power to All of them. And of course, last but not least, like our friend Mark Tyson. Jack is a Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst. Mark, are you a Senior Strategic Analyst?
0: No, I'm just a contributor. Uh,
1: (laughs) We all knew that, didn't we? (laughs) This is our interview.
0: And it's the best thing you'll listen to all week long. Jack, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Yeah, delighted to be here with you, Mark and Danny. So great to have you. So we're
0: doing this on the first anniversary of the uh, war in Ukraine. Give us your assessment. One year in, President Biden just showed up in Kyiv, which is quite remarkable because Vladimir Putin was going to be there three days after the war began. And a year later, he's not in Kyiv, and the American president is. How important was that visit and how do you assess the state of play right now?
2: Yeah, well, I, I I applaud the president for certainly making that visit. I would have liked the scheme to see him make it, you know, last summer, to be frank about it. But nonetheless, it is a significant demonstration, you know, of American support for for President Zelensky and just as important, you know, for, for his people. Uh, those messages uh, are sent around the world because it is the president of, of the United States. And I, I just would like to see and, and get beyond you know, we're going to be there at the end. We're going to help you finish this. It's That's really not a strategy, and it's really not an end state, and there's a lot of ambiguity that surrounds the president's uh, commitment. And I, I think many of us have real concerns that we have, that the administration uh, and the Department of Defense and and others in the national security team, have committed the threat of escalation by Putin to be a major guidepost to when they provide weapon systems uh, to the, U- the Ukrainians, and, and I think we, the Ukrainians, are very frustrated because they haven't received these weapon systems, particularly advanced systems, on time. Uh, initially, we say no, and then a couple of months later, we say yes. And then there's other requests made that have been that are old requests, and we've said no. And then we say yes. And this has been going on now uh, for for an entire year, and it's really unfortunate. And and I think what they what happened to them is their fear, the absolute fear of escalation, has been a major policy decision, and have provided this support piecemeal in the sense of slow rolling Ukraine's capability and And it is really quite unfounded because all of the weapons that we've given them that have increased their capability to prosecute the war uh there has been no escalation from russia uh, and I therefore I think the policy is misguided and secondly, for the life of me, I don't understand why we would permit Russia uh, who has obviously a nuclear arsenal and they're threatening the potential use of nuclear weapons to let that be a veto for our use of conventional weapons to support the Ukrainians' fight to free their people. And I think that the alarm bell that that sends to China, who also has nuclear weapons, to Iran, who is in pursuit of them, and also to North Korea, who has nuclear weapons and is a belligerent power who wants to flaunt those weapons, it is absolutely the wrong signal. And so and so, it's dangerous, you know, what we're doing as opposed to kind of putting our big boy pants on here and deal with this issue. And, and you know, when I look at the Russian generals, uh, I just in- instinctively know that they have, they're not going to make any recommendation to Putin to use tactical nuclear weapons inside Ukraine. They know full well that they can't protect their forces from the hazards of, of a nuclear tactical weapon going off there. This is not the Soviet Union army here. Uh, this is a Russian army uh, that does hasn't trained for that and doesn't have the protection for it. Makes no sense to have that continuing to be US policy.
1: So Jack, this weekend at the Munich Security Conference, Secretary of State Tony Blinken did an interview with NBC's Chuck Todd, and we were talking about it on Sunday on uh, the press, and there was some disagreement around the table because the, what, what Tony said was, and I'm paraphrasing, but I hope I'm getting the intent correct, we understand that the Chinese are considering supplying lethal weaponry to the Russians, and this caused a big fuss but of course, the Chinese have been supplying missile parts, avionics and drones and everything else to the Russians all along. Do you have any sense of what this rhetorical game is that the Biden administration is
2: playing right now? Yeah, I don't know for sure. But certainly, you know, the the Chinese are buying as much Russian, Russian oil as they can, it's literally at discounted prices, which they certainly welcome. They... They are supplying commercial drones to third parties uh, to Russia. Russia uh, chip imports have gone down seventy percent. It's really quite staggering, uh, and it's, it's the impact of, of sanctions. So they're going to the black market as best they can to scramble to get chips for their advanced weapons. And China is sending them chips. <laughs> Unfortunately for Russia, there's twenty percent failure rate in those low tech chips that uh, China is. The, the and I was told by my sources uh, in the Pentagon that after the war got started, a, a few weeks after it, China was considering, despite public rhetoric to the contrary, of uh, providing some lethal assistance uh, to Russia. And the United States dealt with that privately, and they stood down. I, I don't know what Blinken's motivation is. I'll take him at face value that he that he knows something. And he may be maybe using the public declaration to expose it, knowing that will just fly around the world and get a huge amount of public attention, which it has, in the hope that uh, China would uh, back down from it. But I was uh, really pleasantly surprised by the EU who stood up and said that they want no part of that, and uh, this will be a red line for us. And I think if they do provide this uh, lethal aid, it It will bring the United States and Europe much closer together in opposing China. You know as well as I that there are a number of European countries that despite the rhetoric uh, coming out of their public officials, uh, they can, uh, in in opposing some of China's policy, human rights policies, the Uyghurs, uh, aggression in the Indo-Pacific region, but they are clearly... Uh, are looking to increase the economic uh, integration and trade that they have you know, with China. So for the EU to make that kind of a statement, uh, certainly it's welcome, and we'll see what happens here. Uh, hopefully the Chinese uh, will not provide it, or maybe it was just some, some kind of a false flag that was being thrown out there. I just don't know the facts.
0: Jack, we want to get into your views on the balloons and on China in a minute, but I still want to stay on Ukraine a little bit longer. You're the chairman of a group called Institute for the Study of War, ISW, which is I encourage everyone to sign up and look at their assessments of the battlefront that they're putting out regularly on Ukraine. But you said on Fox this weekend that ISW assesses that Ukraine can actually succeed in victory, defined as driving Russia out of all of the territory that they've taken, including Crimea. Can you walk us through that assessment, why ISW thinks that's possible, and what kind of capabilities do they need from us in order to make that happen?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't want to go uh, retrace the whole year here, but just where are we now? Um, Russia has gone through a mobilization of a few hundred thousand, and they have put them into the conflict initially as individual replacements. Many of them got chewed up in the Donbass region, an eastern part of it, a little bit in, in the western part of Donetsk. And They have another 150,000 that they held back as part of that, and they have put them in units, and they've been trained in Belarus. And those, they have moved those units down now in the vicinity of the, of the down bias region. They have elements of four divisions there, and they are beginning an offensive operation. But it's at the backdrop of things that we've learned for a year now. Their conventional ground forces' ability to conduct uh, combined arms attack, that means a maneuver, artillery in support, and air in support, all coordinated. They just can't do it. And then the elements of their conventional ground forces have all either sustained high casualties or has literally been defeated. What am I talking about? They're airborne infantry. The naval infantry, the highly regarded tank guards army elements, and also their artillery, which has always been a mainstay for them, the Ukrainians through the use of HIMARS has been able to deplete, not extinguish, but deplete these forces significantly. So what Russia is attempting to do is enter these forces, some of them, you know, patch together again, and conduct combined arms warfare, and they're just not going to be able to do it. Um, They need absolute reform of their military, and they can't do it while they're in combat. So we assess that while they'll make some tactical gains, they will, in a matter of weeks, will culminate, much as they did once before in the eastern part of the Donbass region in the area referred to as the Luan uh, portion of it. Luhansk Oblast, and they want the Donask Oblast, where the Ukrainians still own 42%. And the idea would be they would be successful then and also move out to the west so they take control of the entire southern coast to include Odessa. They will not be able to take back the 42% that they don't own in the Donask area of, of the Donbass region. And so we believe that at some point will culminate much as it has done before, and that will allow the Ukrainians to conduct an offensive operation that will likely begin somewhere around May, June. Rains come in April, so give that a few weeks to, to subside. But anyway, much to the frustration of the Ukrainian general staff, they would have liked to have started this offensive a number of weeks ago, literally at the beginning of the wintertime, but they were not able to exploit the success that they had south of Kharkiv. And also after they were able to take Hershon City in the Hershon Oblast. Both of those are seminal events. There was great work that they did. But in the military, when we look at an offensive that makes a breakthrough like that, which they did, they were not able to exploit that success and go deep into the, your enemy's rear. And they couldn't do that because they didn't have tanks. They didn't have enough armored vehicles. They didn't have enough mobility uh, to do that. And yet the Russians were very, very vulnerable to that kind of an exploitation. So our concern here is they're waiting to May, June, and they're going to go with what they have. And they will have some success. There's no doubt about it that we we can't calculate how much success they'll have in this offensive. But we do believe, looking at the Russians and how pathetic their conventional ground forces are, and the Ukrainians and, and the center of gravity that they have is is the iron will to fight and protect their families in their homeland, aided and led by the United States Western Coalition to provide them arms and munitions. We do calculate that if they're able to continue this offensive, and we get the proper weapons to them over time, that, yes, they can penetrate and go through the Saporizhia Oblast, go down on an axis dealing with Maligopol, and get to the southern coast, but more significantly, sever the east-west main supply routes that are the land bridge to Crimea, and then bring forward long-range missiles and rockets to begin to pummel the bases in Crimea, the military bases and the depots that are providing significant support uh, to the Russians, and then eventually also use ground maneuver, combined arms, to be able to move into Crimea. Hopefully by that time, we would have given them a couple of things that are necessary. One is attackums, long-range missiles that go 194 miles versus the 50 or so miles that the HIMARS gives, and also advanced fighters like the F-16s. Now, Biden makes the decision today to give them fighters. I do believe he's eventually going to make this decision. It's just another example of this piecemeal support that we give them. Uh, they have 50 pilots ready to train. They speak English. And whatever time frame we assign to the Ukrainians to learn the advanced technology were given them, they usually cut it in half. So they would likely come here, train here, but we wouldn't see, if they made a decision today, we wouldn't see those advanced fighters being employed for later in the year. But nonetheless, when you draw back from this, the Ukrainians do have the opportunity to retake their territory, yes. And and that's after some significant analysis by a, a number of pretty smart people, and also in combination with AEI Critical Threats a division headed up by uh, Fred Tate.
0: So, Jack, if we did this, if we gave them the capability, by the next anniversary of the start of the war, could this be accomplished within the next year? And speak to a skeptical American who is wondering, why should we do this? If yeah. the objective is to drive them out of all the territory, you're saying it's doable. There's a lot of Americans who are starting to wonder, particularly on the right, uh, are starting to wonder, We're spending all this money. We don't secure our own border. Biden won't go to uh, East Palestine, but he'll go to uh, Kiev. There's a growing impatience here in the United States, which is fueled by the sort of indefiniteness of this. You're saying that there is a chance to get this done in a reasonable time frame. Explain to Americans why this is in our interest to do this.
2: Yeah, and and I've heard all of these arguments that are being made. Well, first of all, why? Certainly, uh, Russia's aggression in invading a democratic nation and, and violating the sovereignty to the degree uh, that they're doing is certainly alarming to, to Europe and to freedom-loving people and the United States as a, as a leader in the free world and a superpower who also is allied, aligned with uh, Ukraine in terms of it being a partner, not a member of NATO, but nonetheless an ally partner and you look at that and say, are we going to permit Russia to take that? And this is the same leader that the Obama administration dismissed as not someone to take seriously, that uh, they were a, a third-rate power and nothing more than a regional bully and, uh, and and sort of was very dismissive of Putin. And we have uh, leaders today an advocate uh, in our own country, not willing to take this seriously. And and I think you have to take it seriously, because Putin has said time and time again, his major objective is returning to the Russian Empire, not the Soviet Union, because the communist model is not something he thinks worked as, as well as it should. And he wants The former Soviet republics that are now part of NATO to come back into that empire, and he will do it by force, and he's threatened it. And he said it, he has said it time and time again. I think he's dead serious. Now, listen, his military is in bad shape. It's not something where, if the war ended tomorrow, that Putin is going to be, be able to mount up in six months or a year and conduct an an invasion of a a Baltic state or a Bulgaria or Romania. Those are the most vulnerable. Moldova is something he could take in a matter of weeks, but they're not NATO-aligned. And the reality is that I don't believe for a minute that Putin has given up on that goal. So if you accept that rationale, that he is serious about that, and he demonstrated it with Ukraine because he made for years, that Ukraine was a major objective that he had in his historical part of Russia. He doesn't even believe it's a country. It, it belongs to Russia. And we dismissed all of that. you know, From 2014 on, With uh, given Obama administration, when he moves into the Donbass region, we hand him blankets and the like. And even when Trump was in power, he finally gave them some lethal weapons. These were anti-tank weapons. But we told them they couldn't put them into the Donbass region where where the fighting was taking place and then eventually they eased up on that but we never gave them anything else uh to assist the ukrainians i think if we had given the ukrainians much of what we're doing now it's possible we could have deterred Putin. but putin's geopolitical objectives he has stated them time and time again and i think we should take him seriously the other thing is the implications it has geopolitically around the world. I mean, President Xi is looking right at this. And if he sees the United States walking away and NATO at the committee, the moral will and political will of, of NATO to Ukraine surviving and defeating Russia, and then with a the lack of political will walking away from that, I think he'll... That will just validate what he has been saying for 10 years, and that is that the United States is a declining power, and he fully intends to re- replace it as the world's global leader. I think the Iranians looking at that, who are obviously a partner with Russia, will do the same thing, and they will put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, in dealing with the Middle East and taking in taken advantage of it. And get down to the specific arguments that some people are making. Some of these arguments uh, are are significantly irrational. And for example, um, we shouldn't fund the war in Ukraine when we have such a problem on our border or uh, when we have fentanyl exploding in our country and killing our youth and people dying 100,000 a year or... When we have a toxic waste significant issue in Ohio and the and the administration uh, is not providing an adequate response, well, those things aren't mutually exclusive. And does anybody believe if we pulled the funding from the war in Ukraine today and said we're not going to do it anymore, that the Biden administration is going to solve the problem on the southern border, they are finally— going to enforce the laws? They're finally going to change their policy. Are they finally going to have a coherent policy to stop fentanyl and to deal with the cartels, which I think we have to take on like we did in in Colombia? And a lame response in Ohio, this is the DNA of this administration. And these things are not mutually exclusive. The geopolitical realities of financing the war uh, in Ukraine, it's a, at best a hundred billion dollars right now. only about 30 something million of that uh, is actually military hardware. And now that 30 million, where where do we take the 30 million? We give it to the, our defense industry to buy back the equipment we have given to the Ukrainians or in some in some very small amount, we give the Ukrainians the defense industry equipment directly as opposed from our own stockpile. All of that benefits the defense industry. The rest of it is humanitarian and economic aid. And if we get $100 billion, yes, that is a significant amount of money, but it's a, a small part of an over $6 trillion budget that the Biden administration has. What a return on investment of $100 billion we're getting for stopping Russia and aggression And also, if we're able to succeed in that, that will literally make President Xi think twice before likely going into Taiwan. When he sees the American geopolitical stand that is taken in concert with its allies, it will send a huge message. So, and I think Iran will get the same. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. These other two countries got their own national interests, but they, they do see what is taking place here. And I'm convinced that all three of these nations, when President Biden came to power, saw weakness. And they began to take more advantage of us as a result of that weakness because they understood President Biden from eight years being associated with the, uh, with the Obama administration. And much of his national security team, with some few exceptions, came out of that administration. And that is why they all became aggressive uh, after President Biden took office. I'm absolutely convinced uh, they never expected to see what they're seeing now, and that is the United States leading a coalition that is supplying Ukrainians to be able to fight back against Russia, defend itself, and now even the possibility of retaking all the territory that Russia had taken away from them. And that will send huge messages, and it protects U.S. national interests and the American people. The critics of the funding of the war in Ukraine point to China. China is the real problem. Well, China is a more significant geopolitical problem than Russia is, given its economy, although they're being challenged. It's still a strong economy by comparing to Russia's, which is in the tank. And they're also the most rapid-growing military in the world. And and I certainly agree with the concern about China. But it makes no sense to let China's strategic partner dominate Ukraine, succeed in Ukraine, at the expense of the United States and Western democracies. And I believe that will fuel aggression out of China and Iran that we would absolutely come to regret quite significantly.
1: So, Jack Keen, I have a question for you about something else, but that was a tour de force. I want to know why we... you're not running for president. <laughs> Mark, we, we we will, we are ready to, if
0: you're ready to announce, we're ready to endorse you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Honestly, that was fantastic, and obviously, you know, look, we agree one hundred percent with everything that you've laid out there. One of the reasons we asked you to come on the podcast was when we were talking about these Chinese balloons. You were talking about this last week, and I think this dovetails exactly with what you've just laid out, which is, you know, what do the Chinese think to themselves when they launch surveillance balloons over the United States? The Biden administration sits by and is like, oh. Guy in Montana. Wow, that's a little embarrassing. Let's shoot that down. It underscores, A, how unprepared we are, but also underscores that we don't have control of our airspace. We have no idea what's out there. We just shot down a bunch of people's hobby balloons because we thought they might be dangerous as well. Just to help people understand in exactly the lucid way that you did, what the hell is going on there?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you what. The American people have every right to ask that question and I spent, I think we spent, they spent two weeks asking that question and getting some pretty lame answers in response as far as I was concerned. I mean, when you have a crisis like that, I mean, I want our president to succeed. As much as I disagree with some things he he's done, I I, I, I give him as much credit as I possibly can when he does something right, like visit Ukraine. uh, uh but look, at the American people are looking at a balloon that's looking at us as a spy vehicle, and they're just scratching their head and saying, why? Why are we letting this happen? This makes no sense. And they're absolutely right. I have three takeaways from that. I think, first of all, it's a reminder for many and a wake-up call for some how serious China is as an adversary in seeking regional and global domination. I mean, this spy balloon program that operates in what's referred to as the near space, it's near space, meaning it's above the normal aviation flight routes that are around 40,000 feet on average. And so it's above that, but not quite near space itself. And they have determined that that's a place that they can operate in. And they and they have done it in 40 countries, violating their airspace, and we're part of the 40. And on five continents. So in China's mind, they have found this a valuable way to gain intelligence. And I think also to find various vulnerabilities in terms of pathways into these countries, because the countries may indeed not be detected. And when it comes to the United States, I think it complements what already is the most comprehensive penetration of America in our history in terms of their cyber espionage and cyber attacks, their penetration of our research centers and universities, uh, buying property next to military bases, a uh, huge amount of IP theft. I mean the list goes on and on and on. And add to that the most rapid growing military in the world and they're exploding with nuclear development. They have more launchers than we we have. They got about five hundred nuclear 400 nuclear weapons, they're going to go right past the 1,550 that the the United States has. This is a serious adversary. And I think the balloon itself, as embarrassing it was for us, a national embarrassment, I believe, I think it, it helps to get people focused a little bit, who maybe don't take these things too seriously, that what a major adversary China is. The second problem I have with this is we detected this spy balloon on somewhere around the 21st, 22nd, or 23rd for almost a week. We watched it come out of Hainan province and I've been there and moved towards Alaska. It took seven days to get there. So we knew, one, it was a spy balloon because we are able to fly up next to it and take pictures of it. We had the U-2, which is great at doing all of that we knew knew everything about this thing and we knew what its intent was was to spy and it came to the united states and we didn't do anything about it and i'll come back to that but but because of but this Jack, it just geared off
0: course that's what we're hearing right didn't well the just one most course?
2: article is is the lamest thing i've ever heard in my life when it centers itself over a nuclear icbm field in montana and then proceeds to go to five more military bases, just following the natural contours of the wind. <laughs> you know,
1: we just don't and understand weather the way the Chinese do.
2: <laughs> and managed to pass over a place that I love, Fort Bragg, that I that I uh, commanded. And anyway, I mean that is that is really such irresponsible reporting. And I know Mark is associated with that great newspaper and. And we all read his columns regularly, but that was too much for words when they, came, when they came out with that. But here's the thing that concerns me. The administration forthrightly admitted that China has penetrated our airspace four other times as a result of going back and looking at uh, radar tapes and the rest of it. Uh, three, at one time during the Biden administration, three times during Trump, and all of those came from the South. I have significant concerns about that because China has developed a fractional orbital bombardment system which delivers a hypersonic glide vehicle that they that they launched in July of 2021 out of China, circumnavigated the globe and then came back to China through the southern hemisphere. Most of NORAD is focused on Russian and China nuclear bombers, and nuclear ICBMs that come from the east and the west and over the North Pole. We have radar stations around the world to do that, and specific satellites focused on all of that. And as a result of China's launching of this FOB with the hypersonic glide vehicle, it was an admission that we won. We saw it take off, but we could not track it because it fell out of the range of our radars and our satellites and and we wouldn't be able to intercept it. And that can carry a nuclear weapon approaching the United States, not from a traditional place, east or west or over the North Pole, but from the south. And I suspect, don't know for a fact, that the penetrations of Florida and Texas and another one in the Pacific had as much to do with obviously surveilling military bases, but also trying to see are there pathways there that we can move and not be detected and deliver a nuclear weapon to the United States without without that kind of detection. So that was alarming to me. The third thing has to do with the decision-making itself. I mean, yes, the Biden administration and NORAD did detect it early on. They knew what it was. They learned a lot about it. And as it transversed the United States, they learned even more about it. And then they are gonna re- they recovered the payload and I would assume they'll get significant information. But none of that justifies permitting a spy balloon to enter the United States. That should have been shot down off the coast of Alaska. And for the NORAD commander who makes the mistake in saying there was no hostile military threat. What he's saying to us there was no kinetic weapons on board that would hurt the United States. And he's completely bypassing the obvious threat the, all, the Amer- all the American people saw, which was a spy balloon collecting valuable information on the United States. And I think that was a terrible conclusion. He came to a terrible recommendation uh, that the Defense Department made uh, to the Biden administration. And I think it clearly demonstrated weakness to our adversaries who are are paying attention to it. That thing should be shot down. And believe me, the Biden administration learned the lesson. I mean, as much as we disagree with them, there's nothing stupid about them. And they certainly understand now that it would have been beneficial for them to shoot it down. It's why they moved prematurely to shoot down these three commercial entities uh, on a Friday, Saturday and Super Bowl Sunday did that so prematurely, it was because of the criticism they received over not shooting the spy balloon down. And I think if they had to do it over again, or if there was another spy balloon entering the United States, we're going to shoot that down before it enters the United States. But here's there's a good message here, too. The other one is NORAD is underfunded as much as the United States military writ large is underfunded. And we've got to get after fixing that problem. And and this will help put a spotlight on it. And so our audience understands, while China is the most rapid-growing military in the world, the United States Navy is getting smaller. The United States Army is getting smaller. The Air Force is at a 40-year low in terms of size. And with the exception of certain weapon systems and certain ships we have out there, most of our military war capabilities are 1980s vintage and early 90s vintage. And it, a lot of it needs to be replaced. So this, I think, will hopefully have people look at the defense budget and recognize that a steady state of 3% of GDP in the defense budget, which the CPO, is the Congressional Budget Office is saying that's kind of where we are, and we need to get to something between five and six percent, which is where of GDP, where Reagan was. It's a lot of money, to be sure. But we're spending six over $6 trillion, most of which is being spent on on domestic affairs. And we've got to fix the Defense Department and some of the weaknesses we had. And we just got exposed to some of it that exist in Norad for sure.
0: So, Jack, let me try and weave these two together in a question. So, clearly, Vladimir Putin was emboldened by American weakness in going into Ukraine. China, is, by this bold move of sending a spy balloon over our country like this, has obviously been emboldened as well. How much more would they be emboldened if we failed to succeed in Ukraine?
2: I think they genuinely believe that the United States is a declining power. And I think uh, a lot of that has to do, certainly, not with our economy, but with what our what what's important to us, what our focus is. And they see, you know, political division significantly in our in our country. And they look at the Obama administration for eight years. We were underfunding the Defense Department. And they knew full well the United States military capability is atrophying. I mean, they play war games, Mark, routinely against the United States military capability over the issue of Taiwan. And they know what those outcomes, they're playing our current capability, and they may even play some future capability that they know is going to be in our hands in in five years or so. I played those war games myself uh, when I was on a congressional commission looking at the NDS strategy of 2018. I happened to be on the the commission that's going to look at the Biden's NDS strategy as well. And, you know, the outcomes are horrific. Uh, China plays all of that and knows that the military capability of the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, not globally, but in the region, that they outgun and outman us. And then they couple it with political will. Does the United States still have the spine to deal with these tough, hard issues uh, in the world. And when they look at some of the decision making process that they've observed, uh, they come to the conclusion that the United States is walking away from what was previously a foundational a belief that the United States contributes to peace and stability of the world and is willing to accept a fair amount of risk to do that. And during the eight years of the Obama administration, tolerating Putin's annexing Crimea and moving into the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, declaring a red line in Syria over the use of chemical weapons and doing nothing about it, doing nothing about the situation in Ukraine. And then, you know, the Biden administration it comes in and Putin puts 70,000 troops on the border in March. That's 60 days into the into Biden's administration, 60 days. And he did that for what reason? He wanted to see Biden's reaction. Biden makes a public statement that he's going to stop the shipment of arms to Ukraine, which was scheduled by the Trump administration, and they were going to execute it. He stops it. And his, the reason he provides for the American people is we, we don't want to provoke Putin and Russia. And what message does Putin get from that? And then you add to that the incredible unconditional surrender Of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And I think you put all that together, and yes, they come to the conclusion that the United States is a declining power. It doesn't have the same political will and spine to stand up to adversaries, and they think they can take advantage of it. That comes back to Ukraine and why it's so important that this thing come out on the right side, that we help the Ukrainians to get the Russians out or the Russians just fold their hand and walk out themselves, and we outlast them as opposed to what Putin thinks he's going to outlast the Ukrainians and outlast the United States and, and the Europeans. This is really serious issues. You know, Henry Kissinger, I'm not a name dropper, uh, but I've been associated with the for nine years on the defense policy board, and I'm back on it, on it again with him, he never he never left it, and and we're sitting there talking, and you know, he said, "Jack, I just want you to know uh, the, the challenges that the United States is facing today, by comparison to the bipolar challenge I had with the Soviet Union, and he, and it's certainly that was a significant existential threat. But these challenges that the United States are facing are very comprehensive; they're considerably more complicated." And they're every bit as dangerous. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you absolutely have your hands full. So these policy decisions that we're making have huge seminal impact on our adversaries in terms of how they're reading the United States and the political will in this country to continue to do what the United States has done post-World War II, which is lead the international community in establishing peace and stability, and a level of security and prosperity that has enabled the world to grow and to prosper. And they look at that, and because of leadership and policy decisions, they come to conclusions that the United States can be taken advantage of. This is very serious, what we're we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, but Jack, uh, I'm hearing everything you're saying. This is sense. Okay, this isn't partisanship. This isn't politics. This is sense. Why is it then that a growing portion of the Republican Party doesn't want to spend money on defense? What's what's wrong with them?
2: It makes no sense to me. Uh, I mean, I understand that the Obama administration and, and to a degree, the Trump administration did the same, and Biden has just gone over the top. In spending, and it's it's added to a huge amount of our debt, deficits, etc., and it's spiraling out of control. And there doesn't seem to be a real stop on that whatsoever. But to throw defense into that hopper uh, makes no sense because now you're dealing with our the security of the American people, the protection of the American people, the protection of our our interests. And I understand the, the fiscal hawks who, I agree with them, there is too much spending, and, and we've got to dis- discipline ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, they have got to come to grips with the fact that the Defense Department, despite the fact we're spending over $800 billion as a huge sum of money, is not sufficient to meet the challenges and requirements that we have as a geopolitical leader to ensure The stability and security that we value so much and have appreciated avoiding major, major wars since World War II, they are playing with fire and risk to the future security of the United States if they're going to cut back on defense. Our adversaries will flat take advantage of that uh, for sure.
0: Hey, Jack, exit question for me because we've taken up so much of your time already. You're the author of The Surge in Iraq, one of the intellectual authors of that. If you were to sit down in the Oval Office with Joe Biden and lay out a plan for a surge in Ukraine, not with U.S. troops, but with U.S. capabilities to help the Ukrainians prevail, what would you tell them?
2: Well, I I mean, first of all, they need a class on how to conduct combined arms warfare and what the integral parts of that. For us to succeed at conventional combined arms warfare, you need tanks armored vehicles carrying infantry soldiers, massive amounts of artillery, air defense systems that are going to protect this force from intrusion, uh, coordinated artillery fire, and air support. Those are the ingredients to be successful. And if you don't have those ingredients, you cannot take the territory that you want to take in the time that you want to take it. And the United States, uh, is a master at how to conduct combined arms, conventional warfare. We, we are schooled on this ever since we're pups, you know, as, as young officers or young sergeants uh, in the military about it. If you stay long enough, you get really good at it. And, and I had 38 years of it. And, and so certainly I learned how to do this and our generals know how to do this. And, we can put together the right military strategy. Uh, and I know for a fact we've been helping the Ukrainians, generals to generals, talking to them about how to do this and not to overextend themselves and not to take too much risk here, husband uh, your resources, uh, et cetera. But yes, we can put together a, a plan and a strategy on how to succeed against the Russians how you penetrate very weak, extended lines. Their lines were over a thousand miles, by the way, and how to penetrate those lines very quickly and get to the rear of their formations so that you're rolling up. You're not even fighting troops anymore. You're just rolling up logistics, supply lines, depots, fuel, bases, etc. The Germans proved they were the best in the world at it. They showed the world how to do this during during World War II, it was referred to as blitzkrieg, but what it really was is combined arms, conventional warfare, uh, very well coordinated, very well executed, very well led. And the Ukrainians, my God, I mean, they are so coachable. They are quick learners, they are fierce fighters. They have all the elements that are necessary to succeed. They just need a, a strategy that we can help them put together with the right equipment to do that. And we can roll these Russians up. I'm absolutely convinced of it. But there doesn't appear to be a stomach for it, Mark.
0: If we did that, Jack, could this be over before the second anniversary this time next year?
2: I don't know that for sure. But if we had everything there, once we were able to break through, then we could exploit that success. Yes. If we had everything there, yes, I think we could.
1: That is at once extremely good and hopeful news and extraordinarily worrisome news because I worry we don't have the resolve. But hopefully someone's listening to you, Jack, because as our mutual friend Harlan Elman said in, uh, in the Pages of the Hill, Joe Biden needs a Jack Keen to tell him what to do. I, I wish he were listening.
2: Uh, yeah, I wish they, they, they won't listen. It's yeah. <laughs> yep. unfortunate.
1: Well, th- there's time for them to get better. Let's hope they do. In the meantime, yep. thank you. You've been so wonderful, as always. its It sounds superfluous for me to say it, but this is what we need to hear. This is what we need to discuss. Thank you again.
2: Yeah, take care, Danny. Take care, Mark. Thanks a lot. Thanks, take care.
1: Jack. That was great. Bye.
2: That was amazing.
0: So, What Jack Keane said at the end, if you don't have the ingredients, you can't take the territory you want to. There you go. I mean, he started out this by pointing out, great that Joe Biden went to Ukraine. He should have done it six months ago. And my first thought was, like everything else. Yes. <laughs> he does the right thing eventually. Yeah. But here's the problem, is that you've got Ukraine fatigue setting in, not just among Republicans, but generally a little bit in the country. The polls show majority of people still want to support Ukraine, but they're, they they don't see an end game, They don't see a strategy. They don't see a path to victory. They don't even know what, no one's telling them what victory looks like. Biden keeps just saying, we're with you till the end, whatever it takes. And people say, well, what does that mean? 20 years, 30 years? What Jack lays out is he lays out a plan for how to do it, just like he did in Iraq. And he lays out the capabilities that we need. If we provide the Ukrainians with these capabilities now, starting now, like tomorrow, Joe Biden listens to this podcast, calls in his team and says, do what Jack said. And if we did that, this war would be over with Russia leaving with its tail between its legs before the next anniversary of this war. But if we don't, it's going to drag on, and it's going to drag on, and it's going to drag on, and we don't have it. And and, and so will
1: This isn't just about timing. When wars drag on, people, people die. die. Yep. These are people who are dying. You know, we are so horrified by what's happened in Turkey, by the fact that more than forty five thousand people have been killed, men, women and children, pets. It's so sad, it's a terrible thing. You know, God knows they just had another earthquake. I'm sorry. There are tens and hundreds of thousands of people being deliberately targeted by the Russians, not to speak of the poor, feckless Russians themselves that are being thrown like cannon fodder at Putin's whim. You know, this is not just about American strategic advantage. Of course, that's the most important thing. But this is lives. This is people's lives and the day-late dollar short policy that has become Biden's hallmark.
0: Just to underscore that, CBS News reports that Putin has destroyed 214 schools and 684 hospitals in Ukraine by deliberately targeting them during this war. He's targeting the power grid in the winter to try and starve the Ukrainians. He's targeting schools and children. CBS News, actually, I watched this show, on. I'm aging myself, I watched 60 Minutes. But they went to a Ukrainian school and to, to visit these kids. The school, they asked them not to film on the outside because the Russians might see it and target the school. I mean, what the hell? Right. You know, That's the kind of war we're living in. And every day that Joe Biden doesn't do the things that he eventually will have to do in order to not— because now Biden is associated with this policy. If it fails, he fails. If if Ukraine fails, Joe Biden's presidency is a failure. It's already a failure in so many ways. But this is something where he's put his personal reputation on the line. He should want to win, and he should want to win sooner. And the longer he takes to win— the more people die, the more children die, the more women and children die, the more mothers, grandmothers are starving and have their houses blown out and all the rest of it. It's, it's a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's also it makes war more likely with China. If we don't succeed in Ukraine, it is more likely that China will invade Taiwan. And then we will not only will we have a war in Taiwan, but the United States military is going to get involved because unlike Ukraine, we'll have to defend Taiwan and American lives will be on the line. Right now, Ukrainians are not asking for a single American soldier to come in there and fight for them. They're just asking for the means to liberate their own country. And, damn it, let's give them the means to do it.
1: Yep. Amen to that. Could not agree with you more. Let us know what you thought of our interview with General Keene. Let us know what you want to hear from us in future. Don't forget to subscribe, review, share the podcast Go to our Substack, especially our this highlights. one. Spread
0: this, wide. share this with everybody you know because everybody needs to hear what Jack is saying on this because he answers all the questions that people are asking about this. Why are we there? Why is it important? And how do we win? That's what everybody wants to know. I think Americans, if they thought there was a path to victory, they'd be all in to help the Ukrainians do this. But they're not. They're not being told that Jack shows us a path to victory.
1: That he does. Take care, folks.